Please turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 verse 1 reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Let's pray. Father, this one verse is so rich. It covers so much of what you came to earth to do. It's a privilege to be able to turn to this verse and to just plumb the depths of what the richness of your word brings forth here. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Messiah. We thank you that he was born as a man and yet laid aside none of his godliness but added humanity to it. A unique situation that will never be repeated and never before existed. Father, thank you for Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been looking at the prophecy of Isaiah found in chapter 61 in just the first verse. And obviously, I'm, I'm expounding the verse, which means I'm explaining it. I'm, I'm going beyond the verse to show what the scriptures say this verse is meaning. And as we've taken each Sunday of Advent here, we're at our uh, fourth Sunday, and I have identified the person Isaiah is speaking about in this prophecy, the servant of Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh as Messiah. He is Jesus Christ. It's patently obvious. Isaiah's prophecy was given 700 years before Jesus was even born, but we know that it's speaking of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, because in the very first sermon that he preached in his hometown, he quoted this text. So I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And we're off to the races here. Okay, verse 16, this is Jesus speaking. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened up the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Marvelous, marvelous words. Today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled. At that moment, Jesus unashamedly proclaimed himself to be Messiah. And if you doubt me, we know it was the case because look down at verses 28 and 29. It says there very clearly, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things that Jesus was saying. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill uh, on which the city had been built in order to throw him down. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy. They understood exactly what he is saying when he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) They saw him as claiming to be Messiah. And they argued, this is the carpenter's son. This is Joseph's son. How could he claim to be Messiah? So they took it to be blasphemy. Now because there are guests with us today, I, I think it's good to just do a quick recap of what's gone before to help all of us be on the same page. We began this series of sermons with a concern that we intentionally prepare for Christmas. And we said we're going to use the vehicle of Advent to do it, and so we've got the Advent candles, and, and we're, we're following Advent. But I want to tell you that the entire Old Testament is Advent. <laughs> the entire Old Testament pointed to the birth of this one promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, humanity has needed a savior, someone to take care of the sin problem, because sin passed from generation to generation, and with sin the need of a payment for that sin, which we're told in Romans 3.23 is death, it's the only thing that can pay, the wages of sin is death, But the promise of God from Genesis 3.15 onward has been that he would send a redeemer, a deliverer, one who would take away the sins of the world and provide forgiveness for sins to all who humbly come to God seeking forgiveness. So the Bible is basically a book that declares the creator of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. That God, that creator God, is a gracious God who seeks to deliver people from the penalty of their sin, which is hell. And he mercifully provides a way of forgiveness and the promise of eternal joy in his presence forever, which is heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, God chose a people for himself, Israel. And they were to be his witnesses on earth. And Israel, the people of God, provided the nation surrounding them with a testimony. They were a light to the Gentiles. But even Israel, in the process of time, disobeyed God and turned from him. Because men are just incurably sinful. And therefore, God sent prophets to warn Israel of impending doom if they continued in their sin. They built idols and worshipped idols and, and rejected the God that had called them. Those prophets warned them. If they would turn from going their own way and return to Yahweh, he would forgive them. And all of this was a demonstration of the sinfulness of man against the Creator who loved them and offered mercy to them. 
It's the same today. And it was a foreshadowing of God's plan to save humanity through this promised Redeemer that was to come. Now, as we look at Isaiah 61.1, we've identified at least a couple of the aspects of this great Savior's mission. We've seen him proclaim good news, but only to the poor or the afflicted, right? And we've also talked about how he would heal or bind up those who are brokenhearted. And it's become clear that Isaiah was writing to Messiah, God's answer to man's sin. The afflicted, the poor in spirit, are people who understand that they are helpless. They are bankrupt, completely unable to do anything to save themselves from the penalty of sin. That is what it means to be afflicted. That is what it means to be poor of spirit. To them, Messiah would bring good news of forgiveness of all their sins. But if they did not admit that they were sinful, obviously, they didn't need forgiveness. Well, they did need forgiveness, but in their own minds, they didn't need forgiveness. And there we have Jesus talking about the Jews who were rejecting him even as he preached to them, saying, I didn't come to heal the the righteous, I came to heal the sick. Again, pointing at the fact people have to come to the end of themselves in order to receive this good news. Now, another picture painted by the same truth, or an example of the same truth, is seen in Isaiah, spoken of the brokenhearted, and we talked about that last week. Sin is devastating. And we live in a world that... I tell you, this culture is monolithic. It just, it sucks spirituality out of us. And it's so important to be in God's word and refresh and renew your mind on a daily basis because you've got a culture that is godless, constantly pumping into your minds things that have nothing to do with truth or God through music, through books that you read, through Yeah, television shows and movies and everything else. And to try to stay afloat in a culture like this is difficult. It takes effort and intention. And sin is devastating. And the effects of sin result, as Isaiah said, in brokenheartedness. Sin shatters a heart into pieces, and the brokenhearted are no longer whole or complete, but rather they live in a state of disorder and disarray. And you know, what's really funny is they try to find ways to address their brokenheartedness, and they can't find it. They try multitudes of ways to deal with that, never admitting that they're brokenhearted. (laughs) They go through one wife after another wife, after another wife. Can't figure it out. These crazy women, right? They're looking in the wrong place. The same goes for some women. One husband after another husband after another husband. Beer's not good enough. I need hard liquor. Hard liquor's not good enough. I need something more. This drug doesn't work anymore. I need something more. All these things are to deal with the problems of brokenheartedness. We're talking this morning about 
different communities, how, how people seek out different communities. You know, like um, my wife and I discovered that there's this incredible community of, of, of uh, people who show their dogs. And we dabbled in that community a little bit, and pretty soon we saw, <laughs> we don't want to be in that community. They pick the dogs apart. Every, every imperfection in the dog is just made large. And we thought, man, can't you just love the puppy? It's a nice puppy. But that was a community. And, and you know, the local bars, I mean, we live in the Midwest, right? There's a bar on every corner. Those are, those are the secular churches for people. They sit on that same stew and they talk to their friends and they commiserate with them, right? They go two or three times a week. I don't know how they can afford it, but they do. And that's their community. Well, our community is the church, the called out ones of God, the local church. Now, here's the thing. This brokenheartedness The word of God promises to gently and tenderly bind up the wounds caused by sin and to soothe and comfort the adverse effects of sin that a sin-sick world has imposed upon souls of his people. And all who are brokenhearted are promised healing. There is healing available. There is yet one more example that I want to give, and that's today. And it's given through Isaiah's prophecy, right, in Isaiah 61. And it's a promise that Messiah brings when he said, he comes to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Now let me point out what Isaiah meant with such lofty promises by identifying first the problem, and then I will talk about God's solution to that problem. So what is captivity and what is prison? Now, the context of Isaiah 61, you remember me telling you, this prophet is warning um, the, the Jews that if they did not repent, God's wrath would come down upon them in judgment. And he was specifically speaking about um, Babylon coming down and taking them into Babylon, uh, Babylonian captivity, which happened 100 years after his prophecy. Just a few years before Isaiah began to prophesy, the northern kingdom had already been taken by Assyria. So they had an example right there before their eyes. The Jews Isaiah was writing to would have immediately thought of their friends and relatives in the northern kingdom who had been overrun by Assyria merely 20 years before in 721 BC. They too had warnings from God. The northern kingdom had prophets prophesying to them, warning them. Elijah, Elijah, Amos, Jonah, and Hosea all warned the northern kingdom of God's judgment coming against them for their adultery. But they persisted in their rebellion against Yahweh, and Assyria swept them away. So Isaiah's audience had a very vivid picture of what a literal, physical captivity by a foreign power meant. And I'm sure when he mentioned this, their mind went right to that. But there's a metaphorical sense in Isaiah's uh, warnings here, as well, because our Lord quote this passage when he was preaching in Nazareth. 
in Luke 4.18. He was addressing the Jews of his day and saying that he was Messiah and he had come to them to proclaim liberty to the captives. Uh, Excuse me. The Babylonian captivity was hundreds of years before this. The Assyrian captivity, hundreds of years before Jesus preached in that synagogue and said, today, this is being fulfilled for you today in your hearing. You see, Isaiah's prophecy must have been concerned with a different kind of captivity of God's people. And I believe he was very clearly. He was referring metaphorically to the captivity of sin. To the captivity of sin. Now, this is in keeping with the entire passage where the good news proclaimed was only effectual to those who were poor in spirit, and we identified the poor in spirit to be everyone who had come to grips with the fact that they were spiritually bankrupt and needed help. They needed a savior. And that within themselves, they had nothing whereby they could gain favor with God or uh, point to their actions as merit with him that he would receive as payment for their sin. No way. And, and last week, we looked at those who were brokenhearted, and we identified them as those who were experiencing shaver, the heart that has been shattered to pieces due to sin. And only God can deal with sin, because all sin is against God. Even when you're sinning against another human being, you're sinning against the image of God in that human being. And God's promises, we have already looked at in Isaiah's prophecy to all who realize their brokenness and are humbled and of contrite heart, he promised that he would send Messiah to bind them up and heal the wounds caused by sin. That's a beautiful, beautiful passage. If you didn't hear that sermon, you can get it online. Just go on beaconforthecity.org and listen to it. Isaiah is just using one more metaphor now to identify the effects of sin in the life of people. Sin brings captivity. It brings captivity. And the word for captivity is the Hebrew word shavah. And it means to be carried away or to be brought under the control or domination of another. It means to subjugate and bring dominion over another. And that's exactly what the New Testament says sin does to people. Listen to Galatians 3.22. Galatians 3.22. But the scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Greek verb translated confined in that text means to enclose on all sides. And Paul portrays all mankind as hopelessly trapped in sin, like a school of fish caught in a net. What an apt picture of the way we are before Christ. We're captive. We're captive to it. And then... The implication is that sin holds people captive like fish in a net. It's a universal captivity. The whole world, it says, the text says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. Nobody gets off the hook. If you're a human, you're confined under sin. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, <laughs> after a few years in the Scripture, you see Scripture just repeating itself over and over and over and over and over again. It's the same themes constantly over. Man is a sinner. He's rebellious. He's recalcitrant. God is a loving God. He's merciful, but he is holy. And he will punish sin. But he offers an opportunity to get out from underneath that confinement of sin. The implication is that sin holds people captive. All are under sin. This shows such universality. And this truth is evidenced by the conscience which convicts people daily and prevents joy and personal satisfaction. This being shut up under sin is simpler and clear. You and I are not free. We're not free. I don't know if you can remember back before you were a believer, those of you who have believed, but I remember always feeling like I didn't finish my homework. Right? I always felt like I was going to be found out. Somebody was going to discover just how rotten I was. That was my conscience. See, I was raised in a Catholic church. And there is such a thing as Catholic guilt. There's also Lutheran guilt. Okay? And... That is good. It's real guilt. Because <laughs> we're real sinners. And the answer is the gospel. But you and I, we're not free. In Galatians, if that's not enough, in Galatians 3.22, John 8.34 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave of sin. To be a slave is to be in subjection to another, to be under its control, to have no will of your own, but you only serve the will of the master. This speaks of the repetitive acts of disobedience performed repeatedly, relentless, no matter the personal resolve. The slavery of sin is actual. It is a horrible thing. It was Jesus who spoke those words in John 8, and he is God. He cannot lie. Romans 6.16 is a sobering verse. It says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And the implication is clear. You are not free. You are a slave of sin, or you are a slave of righteousness. Hebrews 2.15 says that he, Christ, might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is a picture of people. To be in the grips of sin makes one captive to sin, and in that captivity there is fear and the ongoing relenting fear, a fear that there is no way out. I remember feeling like that. It's still vivid in my mind. I remember thinking, what is the use? 
I wasn't suicidal, because that wasn't vogue then. Suicide was kind of a bad thing back then. Now it's kind of a, you know, lots of people are doing it. Can you say they live in the world without God and without hope? Yes. But what drives them to that is this fear that there's no way out. And they know that they're sinning. They know in their heart of hearts, they know they're in bad shape. But they're unwilling to come clean and admit that. There's also that bite of conscience oppressing day and night, no matter what the external bravado and levity might be portrayed inwardly. Every person knows in their own heart that they stand guilty before an all-righteous and all-holy God. And this causes an incredible weight, and it begins to dawn on these people, I'm not free. I can't break this habit. Wow. What does sin do to people? Here's a mini theology of sin, okay? Right fast. It wraps the sinner up in strong, unbreakable cords. Proverbs 5, 22. It wraps us up in cords. It ties us up. He will be held with the cords of his sin. Proverbs 5.22. It easily entangles the sinner and trips them up. Hebrews 12.1. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. It's way easier to sin than to do what's right. Why? Because it's our nature. (laughs) Ever since the fall. It rules over the person in every respect, Psalm 119, 133, which says, do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. In Romans 7, verses 14 and 23, the sinner becomes sold under sin. It's kind of like that Galatians 3.22. We're locked up under sin. In, In Romans 7, 14, it says, I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin, which makes me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. In my members means in my body. My hands sin, my eyes sin, my mind sins, my feet go quickly to sin. We're sinners. And in Isaiah 118, it's an indelible stain, irremovable, Though your sins are as scarlet, the promise is they can be as white as snow. And though they are red like scarlet, they can be like wool. There is hope. It brings a, a wage or a payment, and I've already mentioned that, that the wages of sin is death. Sin is an executioner, according to Romans 7, 11, for sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. That's Paul speaking. You know, when you read uh, Romans chapter 6 and 7, sin almost becomes like an entity, like a person almost. And I remember teaching Romans 6 and 7 to the tribal people, and we, we 
presented sin, the concept of sin in Romans 6 and 7, as a king, king's sin. And of course, my colleague, who loved doing skits, had the people dress up as king sin, and then the sinner that was oppressed by it, and then the gospel coming and freeing the sinner. I have to admit, some of those were pretty good. Sin creates more sin, whore of whores. It's like eating sugar, right? Sinning's like eating sugar. In James 1.15, it says, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's a frightening verse, James 1.15. Now, the captivity and imprisonment is actually the experience of every human being born into this world. In truth, it is the human condition. Now, we, we refer to a lot of things as a human condition. And we talk about a lot of excuses because of the human condition. But the truth of the matter is, the human condition is sin. It is bleak, it is sobering, it is saddening, and it is terribly, terribly serious because the end of it is eternal separation from God in hell. Isn't this an uplifting Christmas message? <laughs> well, you've got to have the bad news first before you can get the good news, okay? Because that's the problem. I just addressed the problem. And there's not one of us here that escapes this problem. Now here's the provision. Release and freedom. Our text in Isaiah states, God sent Messiah to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And in Jesus' own words, he declared that the scriptures were fulfilled that very day in which he read it. And he said, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. Now, the word in the Old Testament, liberty, is changed in the New Testament passage to release. Okay? Now, what was Jesus doing? Uh, paraphrasing his, his word? That makes me laugh. It's his word. He is the word. No, he was getting something, he was getting something across. That word used by Jesus gives us the true meaning for the liberation of God, which he promises to captives. To release them. Release in the Greek, it means it's the same word as forgiveness. This is good stuff. Listen to this. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the release of sinners. It's translated in the English, forgiveness. But it is exactly the same word as release. And then in Luke 24, 47, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You could just as well put in there that repentance for release of sins. Acts 2, 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the release of your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. Hebrews 9.22, for without the shedding of blood, there is no release of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. 
The anointed one, the one who was sent by the Father, was sent for the forgiveness of sins. And as Christ was lifted up onto the cross, he will lift you up out of the bondage and slavery of sin. Now listen to me. When, when we forgive someone else, I'm talking to you, Christian. Okay, this is for Christians. When you forgive somebody else, you release them. You release them from their sin. Somebody has bad-mouthed you. You found out about it. You confronted them. They said, yep, I did. I'm sorry. And then you say, I forgive you. You know what that means? As far as the east is from the west, it's gone. You don't bring it up the next time you have an argument. It's not holding their sin over their head. It's not using it to exercise and to treat the person poorly. Release means to let it go. It's done. I mean, heaven forbid Christ forgives us like we forgive others sometimes. Right? That would not be a good forgiveness. I would not want that forgiveness. And that's not what Jesus did. So this is good news, right? He was sent to release the captives and set free the ones who are in prison of their own sin. And that is the good news. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. Now, now listen to this. In Titus 2, 11 and 12, it says, the grace of God has appeared and has brought salvation to all. And it teaches us something. What does it teach us? It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Pre-Christ, before you had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you could not deny ungodliness because you were ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. And you surely couldn't deny worldly desires because you chased after them. But once you repent, truly repent, truly come to the end of yourself and say, I give up, be my Lord and Savior, well, then grace has been shed abroad in your heart. Okay? And now you have power. The power of sin has been broken. It's not done away with completely. I mean, we still sin. But the power that it controls over you has been broken, and you can assert your will... And say no. That's something you couldn't do before you were saved. But you know what? In today, today's churches, people don't even understand what the will is. They don't understand they have a will. The will has been replaced with feelings. Right? It's how you feel. Listen. It's not how you feel. It's what God's word says. It's the truth. If you don't understand that you have a will as a believer to say no to sin, come see me because I want to talk to you about it. Because you do. Now, you're not going to do it perfectly. Nobody does. Why? Because we're sinners. And this is sanctification. It's a process. But it says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, also teaching us to live sensibly and righteously and godly. When? In heaven? No. In this present age. 
in this present age. So, imagine now, and it's not hard to do, someone who does not believe that they're captive, but they think they're free, even though they're captive. Those who think they're liberated and free to do whatsoever their heart desires, those who mock believers for their discipline and their self-denying lives, and they herald their freedom to those believers. I couldn't live with all those rules, my gosh. You're so hard on yourself. Ease up, have a little fun. But according to the Bible, freedom is only found through faith in a crucified and resurrected Lord. And that same Christ, the proud and arrogant, self-sufficient boast that they want nothing to do with, no restrictive religion for them, they have blinded eyes. They're blinded by the very sin that holds them captive. This is amazing stuff. Do you see why just one verse in Isaiah, one verse can yield four weeks of preaching? Because it's, it's so all through the scripture. It's just, it's a, it's a concept. It's a truth. And then it's explained over and over and over in scripture. Now, freedom. Look at Luke 4.18 again for a second. And Christ quoted Isaiah 61.1. He shows that he was in the, 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 the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Because the last part of Isaiah 61.1, the Hebrew would read, and freedom to the prisoner. But in Luke's passage, it reads, and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, why is that so different? from Isaiah 61 passage, simply because Christ was expounding it for them. He was opening it up. He is an expository preacher, the best. According to Isaiah 42.7, the servant of Yahweh would be sent to open blind eyes. Open blind eyes. And to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah 61.1? And it fits so perfectly with Zechariah's benediction on the birth of John the Baptist. In his prophecy about the coming Messiah, he said, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness. I'm getting goosebumps. This happens every so often. And no, I don't call them Holy Ghost goosebumps either. They're sitting in darkness and the shadow of death, and this one will guide our feet into the way of peace. You find that in Luke 1, 78 and 79. And again in Matthew 4, 16, the people who were sitting in darkness say, a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, light dawned. Light dawned on me over 50 years ago, and it's still shining bright, and I am amazed Every single morning. I am not sinless. Not even close. Just ask my wife or my children. But I am wonderfully saved from the penalty of that sin. And it's been broken. And I'm better than I used to be. Oh, oh. Don't want to think back there. Right? But it's progressive. It takes time. And we continue to grow. Beloved, Don't be blinded. 
The prison of sin is more than just being confined and having all freedom stripped away. It's also accompanied by a great darkness, which is the equivalent of being blind. So when the Lord brings freedom to those in prison, he also opens up blind eyes. First to the terrible situation they're in. First they realize, I'm sunk. I'm in bad shape. That's that humbling that takes place. And then the glorious light of the Savior who shines into the darkness of their hearts and fills them with peace. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us of that. It says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing in in whose case the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded their minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Charles Wesley took that and wrote these beautiful words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, This Arminian wrote a very reformed verse there. He didn't say, I freed my imprisoned spirit by my choice. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Ephesians 2.1 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what he was talking about. And he says what? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Thine eye regenerated me. And what did he do after he is regenerate? I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, and my chains fell off, and my heart was free. Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's the provision of Isaiah's prophecy. Freedom. Now, real quickly, I've been speaking evangelistically today. I want to talk to Christians for a second. I've been explaining the way of salvation declared so clearly in Isaiah 61.1 and Luke 4.18, but now I want to bring it home to believers, to, to everyone who has been set free already, who has been forgiven of their sins and has been released from prison and the burden of heavy debt their sin imposed upon them. That's all gone. It's past. It's in the past. And I have a question for each of you. Do you feel like you're a prisoner again? Because you can. Notice that word, feel. Because that's all it is. It's not truth. It's a feeling. Now, it is true, and gratefully so, that we can never be in prison as we once were. Once we're out, we're out. Doors shut behind us, all done. But we can certainly get ourselves into a state where we feel like it. How do we do that? (laughs) By sinning. Okay? By not living carefully, as we should. By allowing faith to become weak and our love become cold. By being prone to wander, prone to leave the God that you love. By going with the flow of your own heart leaning to your own understanding rather than trusting in the Lord with all your heart. So with Paul, you cry out then, the good I wish I would do, I do not do. 
you can get into that state as a Christian. Doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It means you're in a, you're in a very cold state. You're, I, I read it this morning. Um, it's called the corruption of your affections. Your affections have been corrupted. Doesn't mean that you're lost. It means that that love for Christ has grown cold. Do you feel as though you're back in prison because of your long, ongoing struggle with sin? And you're weak and you're weary of the battle and wondering if maybe you've actually been delivered from the bondage of sin at all? Because it causes you to start questioning your salvation. The longer you stay in that state, are you asking yourself, why such a struggle? Well, listen to me. I have a Christmas promise for you to cheer you up and to comfort you, and to enliven you once again. And though it's obscure, it is obscure, I discovered it through my studies this week on prisoners and captives and freedom, and it's found in Zechariah of all places, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what Zechariah says. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free. From the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Isn't that wonderful? It's all based on a covenant of blood. And he says, Because of my covenant of blood with you, I've set your prisoners free from a waterless pit. Now, if you've already been set free, you are free no matter what you may feel like. And you need to take yourself in hand and say, hogwash, I'm free. I am not a captive anymore. And turn your back on that sin and walk away. You've got the power to do it, but you've got to activate your will. He'll supercharge you. You start taking a step, he'll part the waters before you. You are free. Otherwise, God's word is not true. And it is true. Secondly, your freedom is based solely on the blood of the covenant. And this covenant is an unconditional promise made by God to sinful people that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ, they will have eternal life. Your sins have been forgiven. You're released from them. All of them. Past, present, and future. And once you've experienced the release of your sins and you know the power of the gospel and the blood of Jesus Christ, you've entered into that covenant with God. And his promise will never be broken or revoked because it is an everlasting covenant made by God Almighty and he has sealed it. Okay? It's his covenant. Now you must return to your stronghold. This is, this is the glitch here in the program. The text in Zechariah says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I've set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold. What on earth is that talking about? Return to your stronghold. Well, the stronghold is a place. It's a safe place, right? It's a place that's secure. That stronghold is a place where all your supplies and all your weapons are located. And you need to return to your stronghold. You must return to the gospel, which is Messiah, which is Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. And he is called the Word. In the beginning was the Word. 
Return to the Bible. Open it up and start reading it. And read it and read it and read it and read it until it starts ministering to you again. Because if you're in a state of coldness, you're going to look at those words and they're just like black words on ink on paper. They don't make any sense to you. They're not resonating. You keep reading, you keep reading, you keep praying, you keep reading. And I'll tell you, depending on how cold you are, within a half hour, verses are going to start jumping off the page at you, little sections, and the Spirit of God's going to be reviving your soul again. And then don't stop. Go back to it. Go back to it. We read in Proverbs 18.10 that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. Now you can no longer be prisoners of sin because that power has been broken once for all when Christ died, right? Now we are prisoners of hope. And that doesn't mean I wish I may, I wish I might. That is a secure confidence that what the word says is true. We're prisoners of hope. And as prisoners of hope, we must run back to the stronghold of the gospel and realize it's only there that we're safe and secure. He freed you once from prison of sin, and he'll do it again. And though it is not the same, not by a long way, he does it by reminding us that we have already been freed based on the work of another, that blood covenant. So you go back to the covenant. You remind yourself, Jesus Christ died for my sins past, present, and future. I'm free. I'm okay. I'm going to be fine. You think it's funny to talk to yourself like that? I do it all the time. You have to. Why? Because the world's screaming everything else against you. The world's screaming, ah, you, I don't know what that was you think you did. It was nothing. Look at how you feel. Look how ashamed you are. Look how guilty you are. Look at what you did. (laughs) <laughs> oh, he's, he's terrible. I can't wait until he's done away with. Be encouraged. Be comforted. He has promised you that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Not he might. If you draw near to him in sincerity, he will draw near to you. Now, the promise that God gives us in Zechariah is that if we return to the stronghold, And if we but remember his great salvation with which he saved us, he will give us a double blessing. Now, I like this part. This is like, this is like God. This smacks of God, right? He'll give a double blessing. This means exactly what it says. God promises to give us twice as much as we need. Twice as much as we could ever hope for because we are now the prisoners of hope and we're walking and living like it. Can you believe that? Well, Job did. It says in Job 42.10, And the Lord turned the captivity, these words, turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Twice as much. And he did the same thing for Israel. And we read about it in Isaiah 40, verse 2. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her inquiry has been removed, excuse me, that her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received the Lord's from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double for all of her sins. And again in Isaiah 61, 7, the precedent of promise to Israel should lighten our hearts and give us 
just great comfort and peace. So our souls are desperately in need of that and we're weary from sin. It says, instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. There it is again. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. And therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. When, when the devil is screaming at you for shame, go to Isaiah, go to these verses. That's why I'm giving them to you. Put them in the front of your Bible and say, when I'm feeling really, really, really low, turn here and read it over and over and say, God, open this up to me. Help me to understand this. So this is the the promise that's supercharged by Paul in Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, Incidentally, that power in the context here is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That works within us. His name is the Holy Spirit. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus and in all generations forever and ever. So I can honestly say to each one of you today, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. First of all, to those who are captive and in prison, come out, be free. You can. And I can wish Merry Christmas to all who have been drawn back into a place that seems like prison. Come out and be free. You can. You're released through the gospel and in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose birthday we celebrate at Christmas. So this was a good Christmas message. It was a happy one. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, (laughs) that you set us free from the slavery of sin from our captivity, from the prison that we got ourselves into. And oh God, I pray for dear saints who are here feeling like they're in prison. They really are not. If they have sincerely trusted you to forgive all of their sins, you have done that. And they're really not in prison. They just feel like it. Father, revive them, I pray, according to your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives within them. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.